Well, I want to thank the Lord for giving us this opportunity to be here in the church for asking us to help. I want to thank the singers that have done the singing, and I've enjoyed the music and the fellowship. Last night was a really good night. I want it to be better tonight. I want people to get saved here. Uh, we can worship God without people other than ourselves being saved. Of course, only the saved can worship because they have to worship in spirit because God's a spirit. So if you're lost, you may think you worship God, but it's not possible. You have to be born again of the spirit of God so that you can do it. We need to be prayerful that the Lord will help us tonight because we can do nothing without him. And that's certain sure. I have a reading lesson tonight. Again, it's in two parts. Let me uh, find it. First is Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts. Than your thoughts. And then Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the earth on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. I'll end the reading there. The thought that's on my heart has to do with something that I believe has happened over the centuries, perhaps millennia, since this canon of Scripture was completed. What used to be understood Uh, by the disciples of Christ and by the people that they taught for some period of time, that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. That's been taken by the devil (laughs) and made to think that by the head, belief in God is what brings salvation. And even those who are taught better than that still somehow, when they're lost, they think that I do, I do believe in God. And you may also believe in him in your mind. And the devils themselves have a better knowledge of him than you do. And they tremble for that knowledge. Uh, 
I mean, who can argue that the scripture teaches that, you know, well, you know, with the very passage after where I left off, and I'm not going to pick that up, but I'll read it uh, night before last there in John chapter three. I mean, it's famous, of course, John chapter three, and I left off with verse 11, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 13, the very next verse says, it is Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have every everlast, but have eternal life for God. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, uh, but have everlasting life. No question, but what we are saved by grace through faith. But what do we mean by that when we say it? What does the lost person know about it? Can they truly understand it? To, to believe it as it is taught all around the world nowadays, you just have to believe in his existence or believe in the, in the things that it said that he did in this book. Believe that he that he died on a cross and paid the price for our sins. Believe true things about him in your mind. Well, then you've got the faith. That's, that's what they, that's what, well, I'm going to give you what I think happened. You know, just as here, even as Moses lifted up the serpent, you know, he had sent uh, to the people of Israel in the wilderness because of their sin, a fiery serpents among them whose, whose bite was deadly. And those who, uh, uh, you know, they begin to cry out to Moses and Moses to God. And, and God said, well, you make a brass serpent. You put it up on a, on a pole and hold it up. And whoever looks at it, they'll be healed of the bite of the serpent. And so, you know, they put that up there. And whoever looked at it was healed from the bite. And Jesus used that. It's just like, so I'm going to be lifted up and you got to look to me. But you know that serpent, that brass, that piece of brass that looked like a snake? It did great good for those people. It saved all those who looked at it that had the bite. But it wasn't too long before they began to worship the thing. They worshiped it. And it had to be destroyed because they made an idol out of a snake that God had sent to be a blessing. God has told us that we have to believe. But he tells us that that belief itself, when it truly comes as a gift of God, immediately brings everlasting life. I believe that. It's my experience. I was asked to tell that experience, and I may have left this part out. I'll give you this little bit. The last prayer I prayed as a lost person was to the, to the Lord to, to not let me die like that. And I bit in a state of sin and condemnation. And as soon as that prayer was over, the first thought, that came unbidden to my mind was speaking to myself, I guess. I said, you know, he's going to do it. I just knew he was going to do it. I just trusted that he would have mercy. I think it was at that moment that the Lord gave me faith because I had never believed that before. I believed all the facts about him, but I'd never with my whole heart trusted that Jesus would have mercy upon me. I think that's when he gave me faith that it was right then that he gave me life. 
I didn't see the light of God until some minutes after that when I asked for confirmation. And, and not everybody sees that. It doesn't matter. If, if you have peace with God, if, if God has, uh, through his spirit, lived in your heart, then you're saved. And it's through the grace, the unmerited favor of God, through the gift of faith. It's not of works. It's not of human intelligence but it's of God. There is something that precedes faith. It is a thing that people must go through before God gives them the gift. He didn't just plop it down on somebody who has not done the, or gone through the, the preceding or precedent gift, which is also granted, but it's more lengthy. It can happen almost immediately, but usually it's a, I'll just tell you, it's a search. That's what our scriptures tonight that I read had to do with. It's seeking after God. And in my mind, and I could be wrong, but to me, it seems as though to seek after God is to turn from the world and turn to God. That is truly repentance. So when Jesus came preaching, when John came before him and then Jesus, they preached the same message. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if that in searching for God, for the salvation of God, for the, for the mercy and forgiveness of God and everlasting life, and repentance, true repentance are the same thing, that's a thing that seems to correlate. And last night, you know, Brad's sermon was a great sermon. He kept referring to things I had said. <laughs> Is being deep. And I don't mean to do that. I don't, if I'm preaching deep, it's because I've, I've been at the desk too much and not at the pulpit enough. That happens. I came here with a desire that everything in this house that's lost gets saved before this meeting is over with. To my knowledge, it's not happened, but it can happen here tonight because Jesus moves fast when the heart is right. It's it's right then. But it, in my case, and I think in all people's cases, it comes after a search after God. See, you are separated. We read that your, your transgressions have separated you from God. And so if you're separated from God, then you need to return to God, as it said in Isaiah 55. You, you've got to turn to him. You've got to come back from sin and worldliness and, and find God. And when you turn with all your heart and your heart's broken, it's, there's, there are, I won't call it conditions, but there, there are inward conditions that have to be met within you as you seek before God will, will look on that broken heart and say, that's yeah, broken, it's contrite, it trusts me. <laughs> and he'll give you faith. You'll be saved. We should never think that you can just believe this or that. And you're saved. That's just not true. It doesn't bear itself out in scripture. And it doesn't bear itself out in experience. So I want to talk about seeking the Lord. And as I have, and, and usually when I preach, I, when I'm talking about what people need to do, I teach that they need to repent towards God. If, it, if it's an evangelistic sermon, they've got to search after God. They have to repent towards God and, and be saved. 
Else Jesus would not have preached that, nor John the Baptist. So, in connection with that, and trying to make it as, as clear as I can, so that I'm not preaching, <laughs> there's nothing deep in this, it's all clearly stated, it's just strictly right out of the books. I want to talk a little bit about how the Lord, and I don't know if this was deliberate or extremely well thought out by God, but how the Lord in his very words concerning seeking has made a kind of a a wonderful thing here of it. Let's look first in Luke chapter 2, and I'll just take you through a few Verses in the Bible. You can turn with me or you can trust me. If I make a mistake, I'll tell you I did and I'll read it right. You've heard some tonight already. So in Luke chapter 2, we have, from, from what I can tell, is the first recorded in Scripture words that the Lord Jesus Christ spake in this world. Now that doesn't mean he didn't speak words before he was 12 years old, but the first ones that we have a recording in Scripture are, and see, I don't know, I'm probably wrong in this, but I love the red letter words. It doesn't mean that they're more true than others, but it does mean that Jesus saw fit through the Spirit to make them distinguish just what he said in the short time that he was here to do all that he had to do in order to save us. If if he spoke them, and he tells us that every idle word is brought into judgment, I can guarantee you he had no idle words when he was here doing his work that the father had sent him to do. So these first words were when he was 12 years old and his, his parents, had, his, his mother and his stepfather had taken him uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And uh, they forget him. They leave him. And you think nobody could do that, don't you? <laughs> uh, they can. I've done it. I left, I left one of my daughters at the north end of the Grand Canyon. I did. <laughs> We had a car full of kids. Things were crazy. We were heading north into Utah, and I, we just forgot her. Janet did too. <laughs> and, uh, and then Janet started passing out snacks. I shouldn't even go there. But I'll just tell you, humans are weak. Our minds don't work right, and we get, we get distracted. And, well, she starts to pass one to Carol, and well, lo and behold, she's not in the van. Now, the kids knew it, but they didn't say a word because they were mad at Carol about something. So, oh, well, she's not here. <laughs> We'd gone about, we'd probably been gone for 20 minutes. <laughs> I'd turn that bed around and go back, hope we could find her somewhere in the summer at the Grand Canyon. So we did, we found her. She has never really truly forgiven us for that. And I know there's a movie, it's not a very nice movie, I'm not going to recommend it, but uh, about another person lived there. And uh, I know it has a psychological impact on some child to be lost. Well, they left him there. Mary and Joseph did, and, and they took off with a caravan for three days. And then they noticed he wasn't there, and I'm sure they were pretty upset. And they go back, just like we did, and they go to the temple. And Mary says, in verse 48 of Luke 2, And when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, of course, it was his stepfather. I guess you would call him that. It wasn't his father. Jesus corrects that, by the way. In verse 49, he says, 
And he, meaning Christ, said unto them, how is it that you sought me? See, his first words, his first sentence had to do with seeking him in the manner in which they sought. How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? See, he's reminding Mary who his father is and not to be careless with the words that she uses or the thoughts. I'm sure Joseph was a great stepdad, but he wasn't the father of our Lord and, Je- our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus asked a, an important question. Now, I know that it's, it's kind of not what he meant by that at that time, perhaps. It's like he might have been saying, why were you seeking? You should have known right where to go, perhaps. I don't know. But he asked a question that opens up a lot of information to someone seeking God. You know, we read, it says, uh, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation not to be repented of. So it takes godly sorrow. Well, what's godly sorrow? Does it mean we got to be godly and have... No, that's not what it means. We don't have any godliness. It's, I think it means sorrow sent from God to the human heart. It comes to the human heart when the spirit convicts it of sin. It reproves the world of sin. And, and, if, and if the heart is receptive and not, and not hardened against that, then the spirit will work sorrow over sin and your lost and ruined estate and, your, and, 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 and the havoc that's out there awaiting you upon death and cause you to be sorry for your condition. I don't know, well, I mean, I had some of that, but the more I saw, I had such a load of it that I, I didn't think I could live through it. In fact, he showed me that I wouldn't live long if I, if I wasn't saved. And I believe I would not have. And uh, so we need to understand, those of you who are lost and you want to be saved, that you've got to undertake a search for God. And it's not around in this world. It's, It's in your heart, in your spirit, which is debilitated because it's dead to God. It's alive to sin. It's alive to this world, but it's dead to God because of your iniquities. But God is merciful. And those who who search for him, as they search, he would call that those who come unto me. If you come to me, I'll come to you. And see, it's when he starts doing that. As you come to him, as you turn to him, he comes to you and and I tell you what it, makes, what it made me feel, it made me feel worse. I'd go to him, I'd come back with a load more guilt than I had when I started. I got worse and worse, I felt horrible. And finally, the prayer was, don't let me die like this. I mean, I, you could pray that, but that was all my heart. And when it's all your heart, when all you want, with all your heart or what's left of it after what Satan's done to it. With all, that's all you got. That's what the Lord saves. He wants it all. And he'll have it. But he will help you get there. We seek him sorrowing. 
Godly sorrow, sorrow from God. That's why I say, you know, the, the scripture teaches that uh, Peter announced <laughs> in his surprise over the house of Cornelius that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. Thank God for it. Because that's the only way we get saved. So with the very first words recorded in scripture that Jesus said, he spoke about seeking God, seeking him, his person, sorrowfully. And he did not condemn sorrowful seeking. Let's turn now to John chapter 1. Now, by John chapter 1 in the narrative provided by the apostle in this wonderful gospel. I like to think of it as the, as the sanctum sanctorum. I mean, the, the holy of holies of the gospels. It's just, it's just all about Jesus. But I'm going to try to stick to my point. John chapter 1. In verse 35, now Jesus had gone to John the Baptist when he began to be about 30 years of age and he was baptized of John in the Jordan being what God was requiring of people. And he went not only to do that, but because he's showing that that is a picture whereby God, he himself is going to fulfill all righteousness in us by his Picture death, burial, and resurrection. He came not just by water, but also by blood before it's all said and done. And I know that may be trespassing on the meaning of all that, but it's also truth. Now, but then it says the spirit drove him into the wilderness immediately. So he went into the wilderness and there he had a few words with Satan. But I wouldn't call that ministry, would you? That was, that was different. He was being tempted sore for 40 days and nights and nothing uh, to eat. But he had gone, you know, through the spirit into the wilderness and he spoke there. But when he got back, he came apparently right back to where he was baptized. And John saw him. And he said, uh, behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the earth or of the world. And, uh, and his disciples heard it. Two of them, it says that again the next day after John stood uh, and two of his disciples looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto, him, unto them, what seek ye? So at the very beginning of his ministration to the sons of Adam on the earth, his first words had to do with seeking him. I I don't think that's a coincidence. Their answer was, um, where dwellest thou? (laughs) It seems like a dumb thing to ask, but they probably didn't know what. He just asked a question. It's like, uh, he said, you're the Lamb of God. And, you know, where do you live? We don't know. I mean, he lived in Capernaum. I don't know if he lived there at that time or not. He may have gone there shortly thereafter, but, uh, but it was somewhere. He had some lodging because he said, and I love this, of course, come and see. Come see. It's not, I'm not going to give you a big talk about it. Just come with me and, 
And I'll show it to you. Now, I used to think, well, can't say much about that. But it occurred to me as I prayed over this message that uh, it's still the same. I want to see where he is now. I want to know. I want to behold. And he says, come and see. He, he intends for us to be with him. Uh, his, his great prayer before he went to the cross, you know, I will that these be with me where I am. You know, we are to see the glory of the new world and the new Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus Christ, who has prepared standing for us in that place where his father's house had many mansions and I want to go there and see it. I, it's natural to want to see where Jesus lives. He's, <laughs> he's our savior. And we have every reason to, uh, as we approach God in prayer, want to know about these things because if we find that life that is in Christ, there'll come a point where everything on this earth is such a small, tiny sliver of our existence that it will almost, if it were not made fresh to us by God, we'd forget it but we'll never forget what he did for us. I'm sure of that. So that's going to be our life forever and ever and ever. Once we get there, we'll be where he is. We'll see where he is. We'll be there with him. So it's a good thing to ask this question. And so that's the second seeking at the first, the first thing he said to the world that's recorded. Now he says at the beginning of his ministry, what seek ye? And we need to know what, you know, the first one told us how we seek. We need to seek sorrowfully because we're sinners. We need to seek. We need to know what we're looking for. They knew. They wanted to see where it's, it's an odd thing. But we also, what do we really expect when we find Christ? I mean, I think when I was, I just wanted, I just wanted forgiveness. I wanted not to go to hell. I mean, I, I was feeling pretty sure I was heading there and I was. I wanted that overturned and I, I wanted to be made clean. I don't think I said that when I started praying, but I said something along the lines of, you know, I want to be saved. Eventually it became, you know, more real than that. I wanted clean and I wanted, I just didn't want to go to hell. And uh, I didn't know that that meant I wanted him, but that's what it meant because he is, he's life to us. He's resurrection to us. He's everything to us. When you're seeking, you're seeking Christ. So there's another one. Uh, well, I won't talk about that one because it might take us too long. John chapter 18. Christ's ministry has transpired between the last thing we talked and what we read here in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 4. He had been taken, uh, he had had the Last Supper, as we call it, in the upper room. He had taught his disciples as a flesh and blood person for the last time. Remember, he rose flesh and bone. He had, he had prayed what I can't think of as anything other than the, a high priestly prayer. He had taken upon himself the, 
you know, the office of high priest of God who had allowed it to go to Levites for a while, but it comes back eventually to the eternal high priest of God, Jesus Christ. And he was about to, as priest, be both the priest and the sacrifice and, and everything. He did it all. You know, the song, Jesus paid it all. He did it all. And he prays that wonderful prayer that if that alone were all the scripture we had, you could, there's enough for a lifetime. I'm not saying I understand it. I'm saying I don't. No matter how hard I try, I, I cannot understand chapter 17. Just a word here and there. Anyway, back to what I'm trying to preach. So he's, uh, the time has come. They go across the book, uh, the brook, Kedron, and they go up to, uh, they go up to Gethsemane, and he prays. He prays, we read in Hebrews, with tears. And strong crying to him that is able to save him from death. But God spared not his own son. Jesus said all things are possible with thee. If it be possible, let this cup pass. It's possible. But the havoc it would reap upon the sons of men was so enormous that God was not willing that we perish that way. And the only solution was that Jesus would drink that cup and pay that price. I'm glad of it. As much as I deplore the price that was paid. So now, at the end of his ministry, now I know there were there were other things that were said, a few things to the Sanhedrin. Nothing was said to Herod. Words were spoken to Pilate. And there was some, some useful information to those people. But it wasn't truly his ministry. He was, he was at the end of his ministry at this point. And he had prayed three times the same thing. And he knew that the father's answer was, no, I'm not going to spare you. So verse 4 of John chapter 18, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, a fully knowledgeable sacrifice. That's never happened before. There wasn't a lamb or a bull or a goat or a, or a turtle dove or any, or, or a wave of wheat. All of that creation was ignorant of it and not agreeing to it and Christ knowing it all. Not just that he would die. There are a lot of people who knew what it was like to die on a cross. They've watched it happen. Of course, you'd have to experience to really know the pain. I'm not, I'm not trying to make that light. But he knew, and I think what he was recalling from and praying about was a cup that was, that God had to place upon him the sins of the world, that, that the curse that, that had come almost glanced off of Adam in the garden, but hit the world, well, the world was cursed and that, that whole curse now falls upon Christ and he becomes a curse. And cursed is every man that hangeth upon a tree, it says. And our Lord 
who knew no sin and did no sin, and a lamb of God without spot, without blemish, with no guile, nothing but good became all that is evil. When he took upon himself our sins and entered deeply into the heart of humanity, which I think is the heart of the earth. I may be wrong. So there comes a band. It's a lot of people. I've heard what a cohort is. There's different estimates, but it could easily have been 500 men sent out by the Jews with Judas leading the way to betray him. And they come up to him. It says Judas in verse three, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither or to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. <laughs> All this against the mild and men- what has Jesus ever done to anyone? Except like I mentioned the night, he cursed a fig tree. That's as violent as he ever got. Anyway, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth and he said unto that group, whom seek ye? Now, we need to know how we seek, sorrowfully, what we're seeking, Christ, and, and who that person is, in a sense. I mean, I'm distorting what this means, but I think it's all true. See, when I was seeking, I just thought I was seeking God, but I, and I was. It's fine to do that. But really, the, the person of the Godhead that saves is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the Godhead is involved with There's no Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you can always, if you can't understand God, which I can, or, or the Spirit, and I can't, but, but Jesus, we got, he, he made God's attributes manifest in his person. That's all I know. It's, it's easier, even though he's inscrutable in a way, but yet it's easier to think about God if you think about the person of Christ because he became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and we could see what he did and hear what he said and, 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 and internalize somehow how he suffered for us. If you ever really go into the last seven words of the cross. Anyway. Whom seek ye? So this group, this group of sinners, without a doubt, they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he saith unto them, I am. It says I am he, but that word's in italics. It's it's not in the text. He says I am. Now that's exactly what he told Moses when Moses said, if I go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, you know, to let these people go, the people are going to ask me, What's the name of the God that sent you? And he's going to say, you tell them that I am that I am. The, the self-existent, eternal God. Jesus throughout John uses, he says, I am the bread of life. I am, uh, the, you know, I'm everything. I mean, I'm everything that you need. And I'm telling you, Jesus is everything that any person on this world needs. If you have him, you know, there's a, take the world, but... But give me Jesus. If you get saved, you're going to love him. If you get saved, you're going to love him. You can't help it. To whom much is forgiven, the same loveth much. You have no idea what he forgives. You spend a lifetime 
thinking about the things that he has forgiven because he reveals to you the, the distinction between holiness and, and profanity, the life of a, a profane person, a carnal person. Anyway, he says, I am. Now, I, you know, I've heard people say, well, it wasn't anything in what he said. They just stumbled around in the dark. But all of them fell to the ground immediately when he self-announced in the garden. That's not really part of this seeking thing, but I want you to know that there is so much power in a word that comes from Jesus' mouth. When he said, let there be light, light was. When he said, stars, stars were. You know, the, the father, he says, the son does nothing that the father doesn't do. What he sees the father do, then he does the same. It's almost I'm, in my mind, I think, how does that work? You know, and it's like, it's as though the father thinks light. And Jesus says, light, and light is. Sees, you know, the Lord sees oceans and, and Jesus, let there be, you know, he just, he does it. It's in the father's heart and Jesus puts it into being. I believe that. God so loved the world that he gave his son. You know, Jesus, I think, says to us, live. When he saves us and we live, the father is the one that, I don't know, he's, he's giving judgment to the son, but the son would save nobody but what the father was in agreement with that. They were in agreement of all things. Anyway, they fall down. He, help, he has to help them back up. <laughs> I don't know if he's, I wouldn't surprise me if he didn't pick something up, but, but they have to get back up and he asks them again, whom see ye? And they, you know, and he tells them again, but this time I guess they're fortified for it or he says it different. And he says, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. So he looks, he looks to his disciples, to his sheep who are about to scatter. He says, leave these alone. If you're just wanting me, See, by him, I think, causing them to fall backwards in the darkness of the night, terrified, they know that they better listen to him about leaving these other ones alone because they left him alone. We don't read where he, they took any of them in. Not a single one of them was punished that night. Judas punished himself before it was all said and done. But anyway, I'm going too far into this. How do we seek him? What are we seeking? Whom are we seeking? His first words recorded. First words when he begins his ministry. Last words at the end of his ministry. Now while we're at that opening or the next, I'm sorry, the next page, uh, chapter 20. He's been in the grave. Early in the morning some women come out amongst whom is Mary Magdalene. Now, it's not the Mary that anointed his feet with an alabaster box of ointment. I think that would have been uh, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who had seen her brother raised from the dead and believed. I believe she believed when Jesus said, I'm going to die and be buried and I'm going to raise again on the third day. <laughs> she, uh, I don't think she was the one that was out here lamenting. It was Mary Magdalene, it says. And, uh, and we read in one of the Gospels that he appeared unto Mary first the first human being to see the risen Christ was Mary. Well, 
I guess. I guess the soldiers saw the angels and were petrified, but Mary was the first to see the risen Christ. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, she goes out hunting for him with some spices, I believe. And there were some other women, but she got there first by herself. And it says uh, in verse 11 of chapter 20, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping because, you know, she and Simon Peter and them came and it's like, there's, it's empty. It's empty. Where, where is he? And they took off and Mary stays. Was it Brad? Was it you that was preaching this just recently that uh, it was, whoever did it was well done. It's like Christ was everything to her and, and, and Christ was gone. Even his body was gone and, and she could do nothing but weep. This world had no meaning for her without Jesus in it. She wanted him. All she wanted was to see him, to, to anoint him, to do whatever she could for what's left of him. So she's outside the sepulcher now, knowing that it's empty, and she's out there weeping, sorrowing, but not searching. It says, he stood outside the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down. It's a sad scene. And looks into the sepulcher. The men had looked and left. Now she looks. She sees two angels in white clothing. And another one that says they were in shining garments. <laughs> well, I mean, think about what's going on here. She sees two angels in shining garments. The one at the head and the other at the feet. And I think of the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, where the angels are on either side looking in with wonder at, at what Christ hath done. <laughs> For worms. She looks at the angels at the, where the body had laid, and they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where I don't know where they laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back. She just saw two angels, and it didn't make any difference to her at all. We, we can't tell that, that she was startled by him, that she even recognized him. She was, she was weeping so much that when she turned around, of course, I asked myself, why did she even turn around? Why did she just keep gazing at the last place he was? Why wasn't she looking at the angels? But no, she turned back around. Something caused her to turn back around. I think the Lord may have been involved in that. But she turns back around, it says, and saw Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe her eyes were full of tears. She had been weeping. Maybe her mind was so preoccupied with the death. You know, she was seeking the living among the dead. She was seeking in the wrong place. That she couldn't really conceive that Christ could have been there. And so uh, she didn't recognize him. And Jesus spoke, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? The first sentence of the risen Christ had to do with seeking, had to do with sorrowing on the part of humanity. One of his disciples, having 
lost faith in the sayings that he had told her over and over needed, needed to believe the things that he had said regarding himself over and over, at least three times, maybe four. He had said, the son of man is going up to Jerusalem. He's going to be treated bad. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And on the third day, he'll rise. And it was just like, I mean, they just went right over their head. They just would, they would not accept it. And they wouldn't even ask about it because they were so afraid of the answer. That's really what the gospels bring out. But here's this first word of the risen Savior. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? But she's supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if you've borne him hence, tell me where he, thou hast laid him, and, and I'll take him away. Or she's still in love with him. <laughs> and she just, she's not thinking. But I think it was you, brother. And he says, Jesus says unto her, Mary. And see, you know, we... He tells us in that passage about the sheep. My sheep know my voice. They hear my voice. I call them by name. Now, when I was saved, I don't remember him saying Harvey, but I knew that the Lord was speaking to me. And since then, there's been times where he's communicating to me. And it's, it is no doubt the Lord and it is personal. It's personal. It's not whomsoever. It's, it's just you and Jesus. He said, it's convenient that I go away. If I don't, the comforter won't come. And, and see, through the Spirit, he can go into the hearts of every person in this world that are his. And even into the hearts of the lost to cause them to seek. Jesus wants to help everybody, not just some local folks. He came and we read in the Old Testament, it's just replete to where God's, God's will was that the all the nations of the world would be saved through Jesus Christ. And all nations will be. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And of that, there is a certainty. Every tongue and tribe and nation will be his. Not all the people in it, but people in all of them. <laughs> he says, Mary. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which means master. And I probably shouldn't go here, but it, this is a thing I think about too much and I don't really have an answer for. Uh, he suddenly says, touch me not, for I'm not yet ascended to my father. Now, where has Jesus ever says, don't touch me? He never told that to anybody. He would touch a leper. In his disease, Jesus would touch him. And heal him. He was, he was, you know, he ate with sinners. He, 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 there was no standoffishness about, but suddenly at this most poignant of moments, he says, don't touch me. Touch me not. I thought about that. I, I have not prepared for it, but I'm, I'm going to look real quick. I have an idea and you can, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, he said, I have, I have not yet been to my father. And, and we read in Hebrews about, um, about the work that Christ did and what he did following his resurrection. And it's talking about the work of the high priest of God, Melchizedek, who Christ certainly 
having no beginning of days nor end of life, no mother, no father. You know, he abideth a priest continually. But Christ, it says in chapter 9, verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more uh, perfect tabernacle, meaning temple, uh, which the tabernacle preceded that, not made with hands, so it's not of human origins, that is say not of this building, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once. This is looking back now. The writer of Hebrews says, he entered in, past tense, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the appearing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then skip down to verse 22 of that same chapter. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood, there's no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, meaning with blood. But the heavenly things themselves, oh no, the pattern of things here purified those, but the heavenly things itself uh, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Shortly after he wouldn't let that Mary touch her, some other women came by and they touched him. They touched his feet. They fell at his feet and worshiped. There was no problem with that. Where did Christ go? He ascended to the Father. He went into that holy place in the heaven that all earthly things are just a pattern of. And he didn't go there without blood. <laughs> That's all I know. He, just like the high priest of old could not enter into the innermost sanctuary without blood, Christ entered with his own blood to appear once in that place to make an atonement for our sins. But that's a way from seeking, but I just thought I'd mention it. I think about that a lot. I wish I knew the answer to all that. So, I've got a passage that I, maybe one or two more that I want to read. One is back in John chapter 8. It's got to do with a search that's too late. Seeking for God when it's, when it's too late. This, uh, this passage in John chapter 8 is probably the last big conversation that the Lord had with the Pharisees. You know, after that, there'd be a talk here and there, but it wasn't, it wasn't as profound as this. They're going back and forth. They're looking at it as a way to, you know, to put him to death. He's still trying to, to save them. But I think he prophesies here in, uh, in verse 21, because he's seen what's in them. He knows the future because I guess he looked. And he says, in verse 20, these words spake Jesus in the treasury and he taught in the temple. No man laid hands on him for his hour is not yet come. Then Jesus said again unto them, I go my way. You shall seek me and you shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. 
They, I don't think they saw him as a savior, but he knew they'd be seeking a savior one day and they had rejected the only savior that there is. You can go to everything in this world and try to find that in hope of eternal life and you will not find it. There is one savior and it's he that you must seek. And you need to seek him right away. You need to seek him as soon as you know that you're lost. I got one passage and I'll turn it over. Hosea chapter 10. It's an analogy to farming. But the prophet says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground. Now, those who are not farmers don't know what fallow ground is, but... Uh, Fallow ground is ground that's not been cultivated. And the rain has fallen upon it. And it's fallen upon it. it fall, and the more it rains on it, the harder it gets. The sun bakes it. The rain falls. sun bakes it. It gets hard as a rock, particularly in arid places. I mean, I've had to take a pickaxe to dig that deep in the ground in, in Montana once, just as hard as a rock. That's fallow ground. Jesus calls it wayside soil. The, the seed falls on it. And the fowls of the air, that's talking about the devil and his outfit. They just take it away. It doesn't get into the heart. He's talking about the fallow ground, the hardness of your heart. Sow unto yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. You have to become brokenhearted to find Christ. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have a poverty in their hearts, knowing that they, they are lacking the essential thing. They're lacking life itself. They have physical life, but they don't have eternal life. They don't have Jesus, who is our life. <sighs> Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he rain righteousness upon you. Now, there are some people that will seek. I've seen people up here seek. They seek a little bit and then they go. They seek a little bit and they go. He said, it's time to seek until it happens. And if you seek and you never stop seeking until God rains righteousness from, from heaven itself down into your heart, then your, your search has not been diligent and it will not be fruitful. Fruitful. I'm getting tongue-tied. I'm talking too much. Sinner, if you're here and you are sorry over your sins, if you're heartbroken, if you're exasperating because you've sought and you've sought and you've not found, let him work sorrow in your heart. Let him break your heart. Become brokenhearted so that the word of God, that seed can, can germinate and the spirit can water it and, and life will spring up in righteousness. And I'll tell you the righteousness it comes down from heaven. The righteousness is Christ himself. The righteousness of Christ is all you're ever going to have. It's going to be imputed to you as though it were yours. And in fact, it becomes your possession, even though it's not your righteousness, but Christ. So that when the, when the God, his father, looks upon you, he sees the very righteousness of his son, and he's well pleased. God's always well pleased with Christ. Christ. 